Good morning, family. How are y'all doing? So the last, say, eight weeks, we have been in Revelation uh, 2 and 3. And if you've picked up on the fact, uh, each letter that we've discussed is broken down into really three parts. Uh, there is the way Jesus identifies himself to the church. There is the reward to the overcomer. And then sandwiched in between is the meat of what the issue, uh, good or bad, was with the church. And I think we spent uh, a good time on the meat between between the sandwich of the introduction and the closing. And just I kind of felt impressed looking on this that I think it really matters how Jesus addresses each of the churches. Because in Revelation 1, he gives this full description of himself, but... When he talks to each church, he only pulls out one or two things from that initial description. And I think it matters to where the need and struggle of each church was. And so we're going to start with the life truth that how Jesus relates to us matters. And, and I think we know that from our lives. Uh, years ago when Malachi was a baby, we had to take him to Children's Hospital for a procedure. And we had a friend, Trina, who was a nurse at Children's Hospital. Uh, she knew we were going to be there. She was going to be on duty at the time. She goes, do me a favor. When you get there and you get in a room, tell them to come get me. I'd like to visit, check on y'all, check on Malachi, make sure you know everything's set up right. And so, you know, we knew Trina as our friend who happened to be a nurse who happened to work at Children's Hospital. So we get there, we wait in the waiting room, as typical with many doctors, they expect you to be there on time, but they can just show up when they want to. So, you know, about an hour later than we're supposed to be, we end up in a room. So the first thing I do is say, hey, is Trina working, and could somebody please get her for me? And the nurse that I was speaking to got white-faced, and she kind of stuttered and said, okay. Then another nurse, who looked to be a little more important than the nurse I had, came in, and she's like, is everything okay? And I'm like, oh, yeah, every, everything's great. Um, I just asked if we could talk to Trina. And she goes, are you sure everything's okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I just want to want to say something to Trina. Could you bring her? Well, another nurse comes in, also very flummoxed, and she's like, hey, is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, everything's okay. You know, we just, we're waiting for our surgery and for our friend Trina to show up. And then a few minutes later, Trina shows up laughing, which, I mean, isn't atypical for her because she was a very joyful person. But she proceeds to tell us her role at Children's Hospital is she's the person that people complain to nurses about. So most of the time she's involved, nurses are getting in trouble. And so they were all panicked that they had done something to offend us. But but how how does that reflect how important it is on how we relate. To us, Trina was a friend who wanted to check on us. But to them, Trina was the hammer. And if she was being called, most likely they were in trouble. And it's no different with Jesus. Jesus can, if we go back to the first reading we had today, Jesus can relate to us like he does in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I will tell you, this is one of my favorite verses specifically 
because of where it says, all who labor are in heavy laden. Because when I read that, Jesus is saying, if you labor, you're weary because of what you're doing. Or you're heavy laden, you're weary because of what the world's doing and what the world's putting on you. You can come to me and get rest. Now, that's great. And I want to relate to Jesus like that. But I also have to be careful not to take that for granted. Because in Matthew 7, we see a totally different way to relate to Jesus. And in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of our Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Now, what a contrast there. We can relate to Jesus and find rest. Or we can relate to Jesus and depart. And it's very important that we know where we're at. Because as we kind of hit on a little bit in our GC Friday, here in the South, we can all think we're all good. You know, everybody in the South's a Christian. You know, it's very, it's, it's easy to witness to somebody who knows they're lost. It's a whole other thing to witness to somebody who thinks they're found. Uh, David Nasser, if any of y'all are familiar with him, he's an evangelist. He shares the story. Years ago, he was invited to speak at a Billy Graham crusade. And normally, he said, Billy Graham's people are very good about they plan everything and you just show up. But for various things that were going on in his life, he had convinced them, let me just plan everything and I'll meet you all there. And so rather than them set everything up, they said, okay, you be at the hotel in Greenville at 4 p.m. and we'll pick you up. And so he gets a flight to Greenville, North Carolina. He gets to the hotel about 2 o'clock. He realizes he's got two hours um, and he goes to his room, checks in, takes a shower, lays down, watches some TV, um, relaxes, waiting for the guy to pick him up at 4 o'clock. Well, at 4 o'clock, he goes down to the lobby and doesn't see a car out front. He doesn't see anybody in the lobby. And so his phone rings, and it's the guy from the Billy Graham Association, and he says... Hey, where are you at? And he says, well, I'm in the lobby of the Holiday Inn. And he says, well, I'm in the lobby of the Holiday Inn. And he goes, well, where are you at? And he says, well, I'm at the front door. And so David Nasser walks to the front door and goes, no, you're not. And he goes, well, uh, I'll walk over to the counter. Maybe there's two doors and I just don't see the other one. And so uh, he walks over to the counter and, and the guy's not there. And they keep talking back and forth. And about the fifth time he passes the uh, concierge desk, apparently the concierge has seen this before, and she says, excuse me. And David Nasser says, what? And she goes, can you ask the person on the phone which Greenville you're supposed to be in? And he's like, what? And so he just says, he says, I feel like an idiot. And I say, what Greenville are you in? And the guy on the phone says, I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. And David Nasser was in Greenville, North Carolina. And, and the whole point of that story is, had David Nasser known he was in the wrong place, he could have rented a car, and got to where he needed to be. But because he thought he was in the right place, he didn't know until it was too late. And that's kind of the picture we get here. So it's very important for us to know how Jesus relates to us. And I think this is what we see in Revelation 2 and 3, that Jesus is telling each one of these churches 
how he relates to them, how he relates to their problem, how he relates to their future. And I think we can glean seven things about how Jesus relates to us and our needs and where we are in our relationship with him. Um, and I, I need I need everybody to do me a favor. You will see seven times in the handout that it says, begs the question. It was pointed out to me that that most people use begs the question incorrectly. I made the mistake of Googling that. I used to beg the question incorrectly. So I'm just going to ask each one of you, as we're going through, every time you see the word begs, change it to the word raises, and we'll all be good. All right. (laughs) So the letter to Ephesus raises the question, do I love Jesus? And this is the church to which Jesus had many compliments to, but he says, I have this one thing against you, that you have forsaken, you have forgotten your first love. And so Jesus reminds this church, he reminds us that he is the head of the church and that he is to be our first love. We see in Revelation 2.1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. And in that verse that David read for us, we see that Jesus himself clarifies that the seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the church, the lampstands are the churches, and you see Jesus with the stars in his hand and he's walking amongst the churches. Jesus does this because he is the head of the church. In Colossians 1.15, we see this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Again, we see in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elements of the spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. You kind of see in this theme... Nothing should be more preeminent to us than Jesus. Not not any idea, not any philosophy. There is no allegiance that should mean more to us than Jesus. Ephesians 1.15, like to the actual church that Jesus is talking to right now, this is what Paul says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you for you. Remembering you in my prayer. See, Paul also sees good things in the Ephesians. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all. So here's Paul, even before Jesus writes the letter to the church, trying to tell the Ephesians, do you know who your first love is? And so I think the first question we've got to ask ourselves, if Jesus is the head of the church and is to be preeminent in our lives, what do we do that show that we have forsaken our first love? Because Jesus is showing himself and saying, I am your first love. But what do we do that doesn't respond to that? Is it sins of commission? Like, are we chasing after money or fame or acceptance in this world? Is it sins of omission? Like, we're just vegging out when, like, you know, we're like, we feel like we need to be praying or we need to be studying the word and, you know, we end up watching so much Netflix that we actually get the message are you still watching? Um, or is it even one that, that, that I struggle with and I, I feel like the Lord constantly brings to my attention? Are we neglecting the godly things while doing good things? And, and we see that with the church of the visions. They were doing a lot of good things, but they have forgotten Jesus. Um, I want to tell you a story about a man you may have heard of that I think he did this. Uh, you might have heard of him. His name's Jonah. And Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. And Jonah was asked to deliver a message to people that were the enemies of his people. And Jonah didn't like that. And whether it was because Jonah was scared to go to Nineveh, whether it was because Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, but he ran away from God. Because at the end of the day, Jonah cared more about the way he felt about the Ninevites than the way he cared about God. God uh, made it very hard for him to run away. And he seemingly repented for this. And he went ahead and preached at Nineveh. Now, I'm going to assume, based on the fact that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, he tried not to go to Nineveh, and after he preached, he sat on a hill waiting for the destruction of Nineveh, that probably Jonah preached a half-hearted sermon in Nineveh. He was like, hey, repent, or the Lord's going to destroy you. Please. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Um, but God moved in Nineveh because it wasn't ever about Jonah. It was about God. And so whether Jonah preached his heart out, whether Jonah wanted to go, God moved. And Jonah ended up sitting on a hill, disappointed that the destruction never happened, that, that God forgave the people. And it's because Jonah wanted what Jonah wanted 
more than what God wanted. Jonah had forgot his first love. His first love was serving God. His first love wasn't preaching. His first love wasn't sharing prophetic messages. His first love should have been God, and God's will was to redeem the people of Nineveh, and that's what Jonah should have wanted. And we need to be careful that that's not us. We need, you know, we sing songs like Chris Tomlin's, I will, I will go where you go, and I will, I will love who you love, and I will serve who you serve, but will we really? Are there people that if God called us to serve, we wouldn't serve? Is there people if God calls us to love, we wouldn't love? Will we follow Jesus or won't we? And so if we want to follow closely and well, we need to remember the preeminence of Jesus. Then we have the letter to Smyrna. And it raises the question, will I stand faithful in Christ? And we see in this letter that Jesus reminds an already suffering church that he is the Redeemer. Revelation 2.8 tells us, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and last, who died and came to life. We see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, or we might be redeemed. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then in Hebrews 4.14 we see, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is telling the persecuted church, the persecuted Christian, I am not asking you to do anything I'm not, I'm not going to do. I have been there and I understand and I will redeem you if you are struck down for following me. If you stand faithful, I will redeem you. Let me tell you another story about three Hebrew boys. Maybe you've heard of them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men uh, were part of captives who were taken uh, from Israel to uh, Babylon. And they were quickly attempted to be indoctrinated uh, into the culture of the Chaldeans and to be taught the ways. But they had been raised and rooted in the Torah. They had been raised and rooted to stand firmly for God. And there came a time when the king convinced that he should be worshipped like a god, created this enormously ridiculous statue, and said, when the music plays, everyone will bow and worship me. And the scripture tells us that the music played, and like grass blown over in a wind, everybody folded, except for three men who stood like trees, and they stood out. And they were brought before the king because he was angry, but he, he liked them and he wanted to give them a second chance and said, look, I like you guys. I want to give you a second chance. But just in case, 
you don't accept my second chance, I am going to light this fire hotter than it's ever been lit. So hot that we we understand that when these three boys were thrown into the fire, the people who threw them in perished from the opening of the door and throwing them in. And how do they respond? They say, King, we will not bow to you because our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we still will not worship you. They stood faithful before the king. And if we want to stand strong, if we want to stand faithful, we need to trust our high priest, our redeemer, and our savior. And that's how Jesus presents himself in the second letter. In the third letter to per, per, I hate multisyllabic words, Pergamum raises the question, do I avoid compromise? And Jesus reminds us, he reminds the church that our foundation is his word. Revelation 2.12, and to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12 explains to us what that sharp two-edged sword is. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Paul goes deep into how valuable the word is in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how do we avoid compromise? We avoid it by standing on the word of God. I want to share you a, uh, share with you a story of, of two different people who went through the exact same experience but handled it totally different. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had one rule. Don't eat of the fruit of that one tree. Satan came and right off the bat begins twisting the scripture. And rather than correcting Satan, with what God actually said, Eve begins to question what God says. And we see that she gets drawn away by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life because she sees that the fruit is appealing. She sees that it is good for food. And she sees that it has the ability to give her the knowledge of good and evil and she can be like a god. Now, lest I leave out Adam... Adam stood there and did nothing. He didn't stand up for the word. He didn't stand up for his wife. And he's just along for the ride. But let's compare that to when Jesus was in the wilderness. And Satan came along and tried to tempt Jesus with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He said, hey, I know you hadn't eaten in 40 days. Turn these stones to bread. He said, I know that uh, you can just go ahead and prove to everybody who you are, let's go to the top of the temple, you jump off, and let's prove that the angels will stop you from hitting the ground. He took him before all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of that. 
But how did Jesus respond to each one of those? Jesus responded with scripture. And, and that's the way we need to be. If we want to avoid compromise, we need to know the word. Because if somebody comes and twists the word on us, if we don't know the word, we're going we're gonna to fall for it. So we need to know the word so that we can stand on the word so we can avoid compromise. The letter to Thyatira raises the question, do I flee sin? And in this letter, Jesus reminds us that he knows that with fiery eyes, Jesus searches the heart and mind. Revelation 2.18, And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And how does he do that? Because verse 27 says, Because he searches the heart and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Jeremiah 17 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, God can. I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind. I give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You know, we may be tempted to do things, to compromise, and be like, nobody will know. If I fudge this on my taxes, or if I lay off this at work, or if I tell this lie, or if I, you know, go to this website, or, I mean, who's going to know? Well, God does. God knows. Joseph, maybe you've heard of him. I'll tell you another story. Joseph. Joseph was the most popular of 11 brothers, eventually 12. Um, but at the time, it was 11 brothers. He was the most popular. The other brothers were jealous, and they, uh, they threw him in a pit because they were mad. And then they didn't just throw him into a pit. Their jealousy and anger went to the point where they sold him into slavery. And Joseph was taken off to a far place, and, and Joseph, Joseph was put in, in slavery. But instead of being a begrudging servant, Joseph served with integrity to the point that he was raised to the highest level of all the slaves in the house. And then what happened? His master Potiphar was gone, and his wife found Joseph attractive, and she came and invited him for some cuddling. Joseph fled because he was not going to dishonor God. He was not going to dishonor... <laughs> I'm sorry. He was not going to dishonor God. He was not going to dishonor his master. He fled so much, his clothes actually were ripped off of him when he fled. But here's the thing. Joseph could have gone... I mean, who's going to know? I mean, Potiphar's gone. I'm the top slave. None of these other slaves are going to speak up against me. But, but Joseph knew that God knew, and Joseph wanted to please God. And so if we want to be emboldened to avoid compromise, we need to realize that Jesus knows our deepest thoughts. 
and even our deeds that are done in darkness. The letter to Sardis raises the question, am I remaining spiritually vigilant? Jesus reminds us in this letter that he both discerns truth from perception. Perception from reality. And he sustains the vigilant. Revelation 3.1 And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So there was the perception that they were alive, but the reality was dead, that they were dead. Revelation 5.6 goes on to explain this picture of the seven spirits of God and and how Jesus knows their works. In Revelation 5, 6, he says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. The Holy Spirit is present. So let me tell you another story. There are two people, maybe you've heard of them, Ananias and Sapphira. And and the, the last letter and this letter go a lot together in what Jesus is trying to tell us. And all of the disciples were selling everything that they had to take care of the needs within the church. And along comes Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold some things. And they they gave the money, and the apostles looked at them and said, Did you sell everything? said, Yep, we sure did. And, and they're like, You're not lying to us. You're lying to the Holy Spirit, and they were they were struck down because the Spirit saw the truth. They, they could have fooled the apostles, but they couldn't fool the Holy Spirit. But but here's the thing that about the Holy Spirit is it's not just about God doesn't just stop it. I know your deeds. I don't. I know your your heart. I know your mind. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. In First Corinthians twelve, we see this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for a common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterances of wisdom, and to another the utterances of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. And to another, by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, and another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and another the interpretation of the tongues. And all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. See, we remain vigilant, not just because we are reminded that God knows our deeds, but we know that God doesn't leave us to our own devices. He gives us the spirit by which we can serve him, we can serve uh, our community, we can serve one another, we can serve this world. But God doesn't doesn't just expect us to be like, I know what's going in your mind, behave. He's like, I will give you my spirit as a helper. To the letter of Philadelphia raises the question, do I know that with Jesus I belong? In this letter, Jesus reminds us that he is both the way maker and the door closer. In Revelation 3, 7, he says this. 
And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Jesus explains this in John 14.6. I think I might have it backwards in in the the guide. I think I have like 6.14, but it's 14.6. Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. We see again and again and again in Jesus' ministry that Jesus shows that he is the one who opens the door and he's the one that shuts the door. To the Pharisees and the Sadducees, your empty religion, you whitewashed tombs, that is not going to get you into heaven. But to Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who everybody would have said, you have no way to get in heaven. He pursued Jesus, and Jesus made a way. To the woman at the well, she was at the well in the heat of the day because nobody else wanted her around in the shade of the day. And so she was there alone and rejected, and Jesus made a way. To the woman caught in adultery, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, were willing to destroy her life to try to catch Jesus in something they could use against him. But Jesus made a way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees could not shut. See, all these all these people were shut out by the inner circle of the religious elite, by the, the, the legalistic religious system of the time. But Jesus opened a door that religion couldn't shut, that Pharisees couldn't shut, that Sadducees couldn't shut, that the teachers of the law couldn't shut. The door was open for them. My belonging is secure when I know that I'm accepted by the one who matters most. It doesn't matter. Okay, emotionally it does in my flesh. But in the eyes of God, it doesn't matter if none of y'all accept me. If I know that Jesus does. Now, I want you to know I love all y'all and I will cry deeply if any of you don't accept me. But... In the Lord, in the Lord, yes, exactly. In the Lord, I know that His acceptance is what, what matters. Look at even the thief on the cross. He had done nothing but wrong his whole entire life. And in the waning seconds of his life, he appealed to Jesus, and Jesus opened a door for him that the rest of the world would have shut. That is where our acceptance comes from. The letter to Laodicea raises the question, am I as passionate as I need to be? Jesus reminds us that he is the highest treasure to seek. Revelation 3.14 And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, The beginning of God's creation. The words of the Amen. Faithful and true witness. The beginning of all creation. Matthew 13, 44-46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has 
and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. We have, we have this picture of someone knowing what the true treasure is and what the true value of the treasure is. And, and let's be honest with you, we are people who chase after fleeting things. We make bad decisions sometimes. We choose, we choose perishable things over imperishable things. We, we choose temporary pleasure over enduring treasure. We, we choose immediate gratification over delayed gratification. But we are reminded that our lives are impacted when we know it gains nothing to gain the whole world but lose our soul. And so, is Jesus our greatest treasure? You know, we see that when you remove Judas, who... Uh, betrayed Jesus, hung himself. And then you add Stephen to the apostles. Ten of the eleven, no, yeah, ten of the eleven, not being Judas, died horrifically painful deaths because they chose the glory of Jesus over the temporary pleasures of this world. You know, Stephen was stoned to death. You know, we you had... Disciples run through with swords, run through with spears, sawed in half, boiled alive. Um, I mean, they tried to kill John several times. They finally just had to exile him because they couldn't find a way to kill him. But, but how do you do that? How do you do that if you don't know what the true value is? You know, I don't like pain. If, if I don't think the goal at the other side of the pain is more valuable than my pain, I'm probably going to give up. I mean, I watch some of these movies. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. I watch some of these movies, and like you got like the James Bond character, and he's got a secret, and they start doing horrible things, like cutting off pinkies and stuff like that. And I'm just going to be honest with you. If the government don't need to tell me no secrets, because somebody takes a pair of pliers to my pinky and tells me they're going to cut off, I'm going to be like, oh, hey, what do you want to know? But if I know the treasure on the other end is more valuable, then I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer the, the, the pain. I'm going to suffer the embarrassment. I'm going to suffer the struggle. And we saw that with the apostles. As a matter of fact, to me, a lot of times when people do apologetics and they try to explain all the different things that, that prove that Jesus was who he said he was, I go back to the fact that these 11 men were martyred in horrific ways. Is truth because if these guys, it's one thing to think Jesus rose from the, the dead, but like these were guys who knew for a fact he did or didn't. And I'm pretty confident if they were just making it all up, they would have been, not. Nah, don't worry, you don't need to crucify me upside down. You don't need to boil me alive in oil. You don't need to dip me in wax and light me on fire. You don't need to, to tie one, uh, one of each of my limbs to a horse and then have the horses run in opposite directions. And so, to me, that is one of the greatest testimonies to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that there were 11 men who were willing to die for that testimony, who were first-hand witnesses. So what does it look like? What does it look like 
when we know who our first love is, when we stand in faithfulness, when we're vigilant, when we're passionate, when we don't compromise. Um, I want to I want to close out with with this reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter eleven. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gift. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him up. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she she considered him faithful who had promised. Before, Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born the descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they had had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. So there's number one. If we understand this relationship with God, with Jesus, how he relates to us, he will not be ashamed of us to be called our God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons, the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over their head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that this child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
by faith Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose, rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Do we? Do we consider the riches of Christ greater than the fleeting wealth of this world? By faith, he kept Passover and sprinkled blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, whom through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might be raised again in a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though command, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from them they should be made perfect. Let me tell you this. The answer to the seven letters to the churches is Jesus. The answer to the conditions of our heart is Jesus. The answer to the struggles that we have is Jesus. The answer to the questions we have is Jesus. I know it sounds like such an easy Sunday school answer. But Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the preeminent and most important. And as we saw these men and women who God is proud to call their children and have them called Him their God, they all loved their first love. And so I don't know if the prayer partners can go and come up here. I don't know what afflicts you today. I don't know what questions you have. I don't know what needs you have. Um, but I will say this. The answer is Jesus. If you need healing, the answer is Jesus. If you need wisdom, the answer is Jesus. If you need strength, the answer is Jesus. If you are compromising and you don't know what to do about that, the answer is Jesus. If you're lost, the answer is Jesus. If you're, if you're not lost, you need to make sure the answer is Jesus. Is what you're found in. And so, I invite you, whatever, whatever your relationship is with Jesus, may it be the one where you can come and find rest, as opposed to the one where you will find yourself being told to depart.